Hello and welcome to the Employee Handbook, an HR podcast podcast. I'm Arta Wildeboer, your host, here with Ryan Ellis, who's also a host. So I guess, well, I guess that makes me a co-host and Ryan a co-host too. I'm not really sure. Um, I think we should both call each other hosts and then we can fight over it later. Well, maybe we need to we need to talk to a, like a recruiter or something like that to find out exactly what our job. I'm is. taking that for my resume, and I, I challenge you to a host duel for the title. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. We, <laughs> yeah, we gotta like fight to the death or something like that. Yeah. Uh, that was like when I found out at uh, at the place where I buy my hair products that there were there were two other people named Arda uh, who were in their system because I was like, she's like, what's your name? I'm like Arda. She's like uh, last name. I'm like, what do you mean? How many Ardas do you have? She's like three. What the hell? Oh my so, god, that's cool. I would I would have bet a lot of money that there was not a lot of artists uh, shopping for hair products. Oh, same. I my wife talked me out of standing in front of the store uh, the store with a sword uh, to when the other artists came so we could fight to the death. But um, anyway, <laughs> uh, back to the um, Ryan coughs awkwardly podcast. Um, I'm going to try to press my cough button, and I'm also going to try to not say the word um, and that one doesn't count. Or, you know, I, I keep doing that as well. There's a lot of pauses. People, we notice these things ourselves and, and are very sorry for all the things that are annoying that we do. Uh, we're not professionals at this. Um, and, oh, there we go. I just said, um, again. Well, you would think that talking about it would make us less less self-conscious, but you're wrong. It makes us more self-conscious. Exactly. And now we've, we've gone, I don't know how many minutes without uh, even getting to anything. But what we want to start out today with is a huge inaugural crashing uh, of the, or no, clashing of the Titans event where an immovable object meets an unstoppable force and we're merging our two segments. Wait, uh, wait, wait, which one am I? I don't know. Just pick one. You want to, you could pick one or we could flip a coin. Hmm. We'll flip a coin. That's I think point. I weigh more, so I'll be the immovable force um, just, just by default. Um, but uh, we're, we're we are combining our our famous segments, um, which Ryan's segment is called Billable Hours, and mine is called Would You Take the Case uh, to talk about a Reddit post that I found while I was uh, perusing the internet for stuff to talk about, and this is something that comes up a lot uh, regarding the topic of favorite favoritism at work. Um, this is a huge huge topic. Uh, I hear a lot as a plaintiff's attorney, uh, and I think, uh, Ryan, this is a problem that, that you probably deal with as well. Uh, on all the, the time, all the time. Side. And, and it's, it's a huge problem um, within companies that they, that they have to solve because uh, these favoritism discussions are usually a precursor to lawsuits. And so um, I want to go ahead and, and let's see, we're going to read a little bit uh, from this post. It's really quick. So the post was titled Frustrated. And here's the contents. What do you do when your direct boss has favorites and doesn't care about showing it? I feel like I work harder than the favorites, quote, yet I can never get a break. She, parentheses the boss, takes opportunities from me and gives them to her favorite, quote, I'll call her Julie, or parentheses, sorry, I'll call her Julie, just so that they shine brighter. I love the company and would hate to leave but I just can't handle the unfairness anymore. It really hurts and I'm very depressed about it. I should add that my boss is the HR lead. I'm a colored person, their words, not mine, and, Ameri and not American. And sometimes I think I'm being treated this way because of that, although I hate that thought. What would you do? Thanks in advance. You know, that was a roller coaster for me of emotions as a defense attorney or in my role <clears throat> as a defense attorney because I thought, I have a, a very funny, well, I know I have a very funny response for the first most of that. Um, and then when it, oh, I said, I'm dang it. And then it goes to the part where my boss is the HR lead and that I'm a colored person and not American. Sometimes I think I'm being treated because of that. And that's where it gets serious and, and bad for the employer in my comments. But just want to give a, a precursor to where I'm going, a preface, a foreshadowing, uh, prophetic speech to where I will be in a few minutes. But Arda, please kick us off. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good idea to break it down into the different parts because um, the, the first part where they're talking about how the boss has favorites and, and there's favorites in the office is something that I hear all the time. People come in and say the boss has uh, somebody that they always hang out with and have lunch with and um, they, they give me harder work or they always tell me to hurry up and they're always looking over my shoulder and, and things like that. Um, and then, of course, the, the real... 
kind of elephant in the room is when they toss in at the end, I'm a colored person and not American. And sometimes I think I'm being treated this way because of that. That is something that as a plaintiff's attorney, if somebody comes into your office and, and tells you that uh, you, you sit up straight and, and you start wanting to hear their story and, and start wanting to get a lot of details and facts, because um, that's something that could be very lucrative for a plaintiff and very damaging to an employer. And, and um, you, you can end up as an employer mired in litigation uh, on something like this for a long time. Yeah. So, Ryan, um, do you want to address a little bit about uh, just just the favorites uh, aspect and, and whether I mean, is it legal to have favorites if you're a supervisor? Yeah. So my first initial response to this would be very antagonistic and be like, well, you're telling me that this person doesn't want his or her coworker to get favorable opportunities because that coworker potentially is just doing their job better. Now, we don't have enough facts here to see uh, if there's any basis for favoritism or if there's any reason why this person, whether legal, legally or illegally, is being given a different treatment or short shrift at the job. We also don't know much about their employment and all that other, all that other stuff. But my first response is, why are you complaining to me or to the HR person if they ask me this question? Why is this person complaining or why do we get this complaint? Um, in quick, quick answer, no, it's not illegal to have favorites um, or unlawful or, or against any policy unless there's some similar to nepotism policy in the handbook, which I, I don't usually see. Um, I haven't seen in a while. But um, I would say it does become an issue when you're, if assignments are given an opportunity, if all the opportunities are going from the boss to Arda, there's going to be a problem. Um, so uh, just vague terms or vague facts we have here. No, it's it's not illegal to have favorites, especially given that that's, that's work, right? I mean, I, I worked at big companies where I've had people that I like to talk to and people I didn't like to talk to. That's just life and that's work. Um, last, I know I'm, I'm speaking a lot on this, but I had to tell my kids the other day, because every time we do something that they don't like, they say it's not fair. Or every time one kid gets a donut, the other kid gets a donut. Even though they're, they're similarly sized donuts, one has sprinkles, one doesn't, it's not fair. And trying to get across to a four and a six-year-old, um, or anything really, but this specifically that life is not fair, that that sometimes, you know, the people that work harder get more opportunities, the people that, you know, sometimes luck is involved, but life is not fair. You're not going to go through, and not everybody drives the same, you know, whatever color vehicle, live in the same house, in the same neighborhood, on the same street, with the same income. That's, that would be, you know, equality and fair and, I guess, communism. But... Nothing is to that level. So here, again, with all the facts we have, let's just assume the worst on my perspective. So assume this person just complaining about, about nothing. Then like my, essentially the response from HR is, look, life is not fair. Get over it. Do like Focus on your work. And if you have a personal problem with the, with the individual, we can address that. But if you're just seeing these things from a third-party perspective and you're just jealous of it, get over it. Well, I, I, I agree with everything you're saying. I just think that... Um way of dealing with people, especially with younger people and, and expectations their generation has on uh, how they're supposed to be treated at work and, and how people treat each other just generally interpersonal relations. I think you have to slow down a little bit um, and, and validate how they're feeling and kind of ask how they're feeling and, and you know, kind of act to address what's going on. I, I think if it's appropriate, yeah, you, you, you shut it down. Um, depending on the circumstances, but also depending on the circumstances, try to be a little bit more empathetic because um, of something that we talked about in earlier podcasts, the wrongful termination lawsuits and harassment and discrimination lawsuits are driven by emotion. Um, people who are suing for those types of things are people who feel like they have not had their complaints or concerns validated, who feel like they have not been given a fair chance to explain uh, if they're being fired or disciplined. So I think that's a very important thing that we have to uh, talk about just in, in the way that you talk to these employees when they bring up subjects like this. Well, it's, it's weird because it sounds like we're on the same page with with how to deal with the issue, at least at the stage early on. Of, the first stage, yeah. yeah. Which, which again, is, I, I think, patently ridiculous. And I, I'm not a fan. I mean, I've, I've been in the mire. I'm going to try to use big and complicated words, Arda, to, to try to be well, like... Four letters, mire. Well, no, but, it's, but I don't even know if I'm saying it right. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to be in, like, in the trenches of, uh, of this employee. Or I mean, we all grew up... I mean, I'm going to say we all as in the people who had jobs. We all grew up having jobs, working for, you know... I worked for a hotel chain and a restaurant. I worked for a, you know, a, a bar and grill. I worked for a car detailing shop. I mean, I have a long history of random jobs. I was growing up you know, as a kid. 
and we've all had you know personal experiences and we all have different ways of dealing with our conflicts and issues but I, I think me as an adult I'm speaking for myself personally and I know a lot of people that I know in you know in any job these days that are out of their 20s essentially like you don't you go to work to go to work and do a job um, you don't go to work to have fun and I'm going to quote my dad who says if work was fun they would call it fun but it's not they call it work because you go and you work yes people enjoy their job I enjoy my job like all of this stuff is there but it's not fun you're not there to have fun especially as an employee you're there to do a job and to leave can you make it enjoyable yes can you make it bearable yes are you having fun? Sometimes. Maybe you, you love your job and that's great. But this person in this example does not sound like they love their job because they're focusing their, and there's a point to this, I promise, that they're focusing their attention to other people, what other people are getting, what other people are doing, as opposed to doing their job. Again, I'm going to assume the best situation for the employer here in my discussion, which is this employee maybe isn't performing well. And maybe this employee is spending an hour a day looking around the office, trying to find out who's doing what to get dirt on people or not focusing on the job or just delaying whatever. Maybe their performance isn't well. Maybe, um, and again, I don't know if this is the reason, but maybe not being from America, there's a different work culture from wherever this person is. And that, that's fine. But again, to sit there and complain about things and not try to take action personally to fix the situation, I think is a big misstep um, that's that's gone on a lot here. And, and I think uh, here, understanding the way that different generations. I mean, I think, first of all, I think it's stupid to split people up into generations. It doesn't really make sense. But um, anyway, younger people, I think, yeah, have a very different idea of what work is supposed to be like than older people. I mean, we're um, you know, kind of born in the early 80s and, and a lot of your um, expectations about work and, and what life is going to be like is born out through watching media and TV and things like that. And everybody kind of expected uh, around our age for work to be difficult, for your boss to yell at you, for, uh, you know, you have to earn your place and, and things like that. So getting yelled at and, and things like that was not something uh, that was foreign in terms of expectations for what work is yeah. for a lot of people. And, and oh, yeah. it's changed a lot. And um, that's that's one of those things is HR being in charge of culture or, or driving culture in a company has to be aware of. Um, just balancing of, um, legally, what is your uh, exposure here? And then as a person, how do you handle this? Because legally, if you feel like you don't have any legal exposure, maybe you just want to tell this person to fuck off and leave you alone. But uh, if, if you are worried you have legal exposure, you might be a lot nicer. But I, I think uh, because of the way that decisions to sue companies uh, by plaintiffs, by ex-employees is, is very much emotionally driven, you have to be very aware of of uh, the emotions that are causing this person to bring up this problem or feel like this. Yeah, and just to kind of highlight what you just said, is you might, as HR professionals or legal professionals, want to tell them to fuck off or, or you know, hey, you're, you're blowing us out the portion you got out of my office. Two things to focus on this first part of this example, which is, um, one, of course, you would never say it to that person that way. We know that. We're, we're speaking, you know, very candidly about how people think about these issues sometimes. But two is, that we have to take into account that this person is the HR lead. So, I mean, if you're going to go to talk, complain to HR in this situation, if that's your boss, you're not going to complain to your boss, right? So you'd look to a policy to see who to report to if your boss or your direct report is someone who's causing these issues um, or just go above them. Um, but um, so taking it back to like a professional standpoint, what I would do in addressing this first part Although I said how I would do it in one or two sentences using a couple swear words or choice words, we would in, inform the HR person or the, the person that we acknowledge the issue that doing so we see is affecting his morale and could affect the team morale, overall culture of the company and his productivity or her. I don't know if it's a he or she or however they identify, that's fine. And that we would tell them essentially in, in, in telling them that we're that we've we don't believe there's a, an issue here or that we'll look into it or, or we're conducting an investigation or whatever depending on how bad it was, that we're doing so to not only address the concerns, but to make sure we're promoting a fair and inclusive workplace and how important that is. Um, and then that essentially we're there to address those concerns and to help. Now, again, I, I think a very nice letter with one or two paragraphs and possibly a discussion will, will rid yourself of this problem um, and to show that you're being empathetic to this person, which addresses the previous concerns we talked about, which is these employers employees just sometimes want to be heard and and felt that their complaints are valid or at least validated in some certain way so they don't just sit there and stew yeah and one thing that people have to keep in mind is that 
once these complaints go up the chain, uh, it, it's like playing a game of telephone. The, the message will, will get lost uh, the further it goes up the chain. And, and this person is just going to be looked at as an annoyance. Uh, their personhood, it, it kind of gets lost as HR takes it up to a C-suite person. Maybe it goes up to general counsel or, or whatever it is. Um, so I, I think uh, if, if this person were to come in my office just talking about favoritism, I would tell them you really don't have much of a case here. Uh, if you don't like the environment, I would suggest that you look for another job or uh, find a way to, to manage your feelings and, and manage uh, your relationship with your boss. But again, I, another thing that I would tell them to do is, is put it in writing and send them a letter because um, as an employee, if you complain, a lot of times you have a target on your back. And so if you write a letter describing the things that you're uh, afraid of, uh, or, or that you're dealing with, afraid of being retaliated against, I should say, um, you know, and being fired for, for complaining, they'll make up something, oh, you're tardy one day, you're fired. Um, I, I would write a letter if I was the employee to HR and, and kind of explain and then let them take it from there. Uh, because that, that's also going to protect you. And uh, if you're a company where an employee writes a letter like that to you, just know that they've probably retained an attorney or at least gotten some advice from an attorney about this. Yeah, no, that's that's a very good point. I think there's absolutely a reason for your side or the plaintiff's side, employee side, however you want to address it, to put it in writing, document it, make sure that there's an understanding that this complaint was made. Because as we will get into in a few minutes, the, the second half of this example, if, if the complaint or this issue leads to a lawsuit or, or any form of arbitration or other litigation, that's going to help the employee and obviously be that be detrimental to the employer, depending on what they do. Now, in addition to what I said earlier, depending on the facts, of course, um, actually, this is a good time to put in our caveat and our, our little asterisk, not legal advice, entertainment purposes only. We're not your attorneys. We'd love to consult with you if you're in one of our jurisdictions, California, Nevada, Texas, Michigan, I'm sure some others throughout our firm. Uh, but we just want to make sure you know that Again, give the standard one every time. We're not financial advisors. We don't offer financial advice. Do not invest in stocks because of what we're talking about here. It's no all for tax fun. Advice either. No tax advice. I'm trying to think what else I have in my engagement letter. Anyway, so going so back to pay what, your taxes. That's that's our one bit of tax advice is to pay your taxes. Yes. Yes. Um, so going back to what HR, what the company should do, obviously address the concerns. Depending on the level of severity, you, you want to make sure you give it enough consideration to avoid the you didn't investigate issue again just on the fact that there's favoritism depending on how bad it is again there could be an issue where you have to address the with the hr manager or hr lead that they can't do this anymore maybe note to file i would assume there's not going to be a, a pip in place because it, it seems a little ex excessive for this but maybe a good middle ground is with all of the e-learning uh, available today to employers through not only hr services online third-party services, but through insurance carriers that maybe offer the HR lead uh, a training and awareness uh, training and awareness program, something to talk about how to avoid favoritism, but still maintain your friendships and personal relationships in the workplace. And then report whatever you do back to the employee. Say, hey, we told you all this stuff in the first place. After we investigate, we thank you for the complaint. Then follow up with, we investigated, we looked into it, we did whatever. It won't happen again. We're, we're striving to do the best. And we did X, Y, Z. I would think that an employee who's made these comments or complains to HR or to a supervisor or to a C-suite or whoever that would listen, given that it was an HR lead here that did these things, receiving a, a confirmation that the address, the complaint, complaint was addressed along with maybe training or, or a note to file being done, I think that it would satisfy a lot of concerns and avoid this being an issue going forward. Again, not saying they won't sue later, but who knows? Yeah, yeah. all, all you can do is mitigate that. That's, that's one thing that... Uh, you, as an HR person, as general counsel, as C-suite person, you have to live with is that you're going to get sued. It's going to happen. Sometimes there's nothing you can do there. Every company, no matter how many attorneys they have, no matter how many HR uh, people they have on staff, no matter uh, how good their general counsel is, how much they want to remain compliant, there's a chance that you're going to get sued and there's nothing you can do about it. And so you just have to conduct your business and, and set up your business in a way to mitigate uh, the consequences of, of being sued, which just means paying out less money when you do get sued. Yep, agreed. Um, so um, I want to add a, a few more facts from the original poster here. Uh, and we're going to do that in segment two because we're coming up on uh, almost 20 minutes. I think probably a little less, but um, we'll be right back.
and we are back. We just want to give a shout out to our sponsors, Law Office of Arda Wildeborn and Law Office of Ryan Ellis, who have very generously sponsored this podcast by paying for our yearly Zoom subscription, where we get to go over 40 minutes and not get... <laughs> not not get cut off at that 40 minutes and then awkwardly have to explain to the other person that you didn't pay the $120 a year for your Zoom subscription. Well, th those sponsors sound amazing. They are. They're the best. Let me tell you, the best. Law Office of Arta Wildeport and, and Ryan Ellis Law Corporation, um, two of the greatest sponsors that any podcast could have. So again, Law Office of Arta Wildeport and Ryan Ellis Law, the best sponsors ever. Um, we, uh, you know, don't know where they came from and, and uh, who they are, but they're awesome. So anyway, end of commercial. I, I want to read a, a few more facts um, from the original poster on the, the situation we're talking about in segment one. Um, so uh, in, in response to a question from a commenter um, talking about, uh, is it possible that Julie the other employee, the favorite, gets work because she asked for it and does a good job, which was what Ryan was mentioning. This is what the, the person has said. Um, I have responsibilities and always go above and beyond. I ask to be a part of different projects, which I complete successfully. I work from 8 a.m. to 6.30 p.m. while Julie comes and goes as she pleases. I know for certain that she doesn't do more than me, and the latest that happened was that the boss took a project that I led that turned out very successful and gave it to Julie with zero explanations to me. Also, this favoritism from the boss is not only towards me. Another person from the HR department left because of it. It's very frustrating and depressing. I will talk to the boss the day I quit and make sure she knows why I'm leaving. Well, wow, that's not good. It's kind of loaded. I mean, if if I'm a general counsel or outside counsel or HR person, Hearing the day I quit makes me feel a lot better in the sense that um, you, you're not likely to get hit with a wrongful termination because they quit. Uh, so, I mean, that that's very promising, I guess. But, uh, well, from a company standpoint that you're not going to get sued. I don't know if it's promising in, in building culture and stuff like that, but we're not really here to talk about that. There's lots of podcasts that will talk about that. And um, we're, we're just going to focus on the legal issue. But uh, before we get to this, I want to jump in. I love the other comments. Ask your boss how you can be her favorite, too. <laughs> yeah, hey, no. hey, I notice you're being a, uh, you're you're giving favoritism to Julie as he rolls he or she rolls his eyes or her eyes. But uh, hey, how can I be your favorite? <laughs> like, yeah, I don't. Know. Sorry, I don't know. That to okay. me is the worst. That's the worst comment. I'm candy. I, if you want to be my favorite at work, just ply me with candy. Um, you know, Twix. I'm a really big Twix fan. Anything. Wait, wait, left or right? Left or right? Oh, left or right Twix? You mean? Yeah. I just, I'm an animal. I just eat them. <laughs> I don't even take them out of the wrapper. I just destroy them. I just crush them in the wrapper and just pour them in my mouth like a <laughs> Um, But anyway, um, so again, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the stuff that, that she's talking about is, is very feelingsy, which, which is attorneys. We don't really like to deal with, um, uh, you know, except in employment cases, once we have grounds, um, for, for a discrimination case. Then we want to know about your feelings. But, you know, this... The sorry, I got to interrupt you again. I'm sorry, this is a great podcast. Yeah, I interrupt. When, there's another comment that says, from just, an outside, from just an outside perspective, you seem like an emotional person. This isn't a bad thing, but if your boss isn't, you won't mesh and you definitely not communicate effectively with, you, with each other. That, I think, hits it dead on from what we're talking about right now. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, it, it's... As a person, if you're the one experiencing favoritism, you really have to ask yourself, um, what is the basis of this favoritism? And is it just um, that the other person is better at their job than you are? Um, you know, a, a lot of, of what they're saying seems a little bit unreasonable, uh, except when you get to the other part, uh, when, when we talk about the, the racism issue, um, which is something that uh, every company kind of dreads to have to deal with. Um, because it, it's such a loaded issue in, in the United States uh, and, and can lead to a lot of bad press for a company. Uh, getting accused of racism, of course, is really the uh, kind of worst thing that could happen um, for a company uh, in the sense of legal exposure and, and uh, bad press. So um, let, let's talk a little bit about that. Ryan, if now you're not just dealing with the favoritism issue and, and a, the HR lead comes to you and your position as a consultant or general counsel. Um, 
What are you saying um, when you hear that the person thinks they might be treated differently because of their race? Yeah, the second part, as, as we prophetically uh, opined earlier, was the second part of this is a, is a much bigger issue and a much more serious issue, both I think from your side and, and the employer's side here. If I receive this from an employer, or if I was the employer, if I was in you know, HR, we'd have to conduct an immediate investigation. I, I think that it would be improper to advise not to and to give this any sort of short shrift. Now, it obviously calls into, calls into account a lot more, and it's going to be way more involved to, to perform this kind of investigation. And you're going to have to talk to not only the HR lead, this, this person, but also Julie. You're going to have to talk to Julie about it. It's going to be very awkward. Um, and the other thing that is kind of going to suck for this employee is nothing's going to get better, like personality-wise, between the HR lead, Julie, and this person, because clearly you're complaining about them and everybody's going to know about it with this investigation. But again, for the company's perspective, got to do it. Uh, lots of problems, lots of big problems here. Not only do you have uh, color protection that you're dealing with, at least under federal law in, in California and most states, I think all states, and then you have national origin. And then you have this, this favoritism issue. Uh, I, I don't know. There's, there's a lot of bad stuff here. And the first thing is immediate investigation, serious investigation. Well, it's a lot of bad stuff. And, and it's it's going to affect the other people in the office because now these people are, uh, and by these people, I mean Julian, the supervisor, uh, are, are potentially going to become very defensive. Uh, as we were talking about, nobody wants to be accused of being racist. It's a very serious thing to be uh, accused of racist. Of, of being racist and, and some people uh if somebody was um characterizing your work friendship as being based on being racist against other employees that's something that is going to be very hard to hear hard to take and and you're going to feel um like the investigation is is unfair and, and that you're being targeted now so now you have not only one disgruntled employee as the original complainer but you have the other two as well uh, and, and that could lead to potential legal uh, exposure as well. You know, these things are all very, very difficult to deal with. And as we said, sometimes there's no way to get out of these types of things that somebody is going to sue because they're emotional and th there's nothing you can do as a company, um, you know, because you cannot micromanage to, to the level or degree that um, you, you could stop these things from happening. Yeah, and from a plaintiff's attorney perspective, are you salivating at the mouth when you saw the second part where you're you had all of these issues to deal with and potential actual grounds for a lawsuit, especially like in a state like California. Yeah, definitely. As a plaintiff's attorney, I'm uh, I'm really perking up when I hear the second part. Uh, again, not to sound cynical or, or not to be accused of being cynical, but again, this is all about money. Um, we're we're suing because we want to get money, and we only want to sue when we can get a considerable amount of money from the company, and that's going to take. Um, something that's going to make a jury uh, react emotionally and want to punish the, the company. And, and something like uh, racial discrimination is something that juries really become emotional about and um, will really punish a company for. Uh, yeah, especially especially in a, city, in a city, county like Los Angeles, that is extremely diverse. Um, what You're going to have a lot of issues with the jury, given it's most likely going to be diverse. So if you're an employer discriminating the base on race, color, national order, those kind of things, with a diverse jury, you're going to have a bad time. Yeah, and and um, this is a good foundation for a lawsuit. But then again, you really have to talk to um, the, the potential client to see what was the kind of manifestation of, of this discrimination at work. Uh, here we have somebody, um, the original poster, who is, who's complaining about the other person being able to come and go as they want. Uh, Julie in the office and, and being friends with the um, uh, with the HR head. And so those things, they, you know, that that's really a fine line um, for whether or not something racist has gone on and, and if this was going to be a good, um, good lawsuit. I mean, at this point, with the facts that we know, uh, I'm not... Well, hold on a second, hold on a second. Don't take the case yet or don't deny the case yet. Let me add some facts here. So let's assume, because otherwise, I mean, I think we're both kind of in a weird, like, abeyance position we don't really know what to do let's let's assume a couple things one is company does nothing about it whether or not it's investigated there's an investigation and it turns out there's nothing done or they give short shrift or whatever assume that nothing is done the employees left the status quo the the manager or the hr manager and julie both know about it and we fast forward in, in time to a place where we're kind of left now this 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 mini bomb or rocket has gone off 
investigation conducted, we're back to status quo. And this person comes to you and says, hey, what do I have? What, what, what do I have legal remedy wise? Well, if you don't do anything, if the company doesn't do anything about it, that's something that could be further evidence or, or maybe not evidence, but it, it could definitely suggest that they don't care and, and that it could be racist because uh, they didn't take it seriously. As a plaintiff's attorney, you're trying to um, find advantages in, in anything the company is doing and, and reacting. And so an underreaction to something like this is, is something that's going to make the case a lot more uh, palatable to take on as a plaintiff's attorney, because now you have somebody who has, you know, possibly a very valid complaint. Um, you know, you're you're going to have to talk to the plaintiff here and and or potential plaintiff here, potential client, and see um, if if they're believable, if they're being overly emotional, and how they're going to play with the jury. If, if people will believe them, those are all very important things. And let's say you cross that threshold, um, then you have a company that is negligent in their duty to investigate serious allegations. And that is going to put the company in a bad spot, uh, especially during depositions. Um, th this is, uh, even if you don't necessarily um, have a case that's jumping out at you um, with, with facts that suggest uh, racism, once you get the HR person or Julie or whoever into a deposition, now um, all bets are off. You, you can, a skilled plaintiff's attorney could really um, ask questions in a way to put them on a spot that will suggest that. Um, the company behaved in a way that would cause them to want to have to settle this case or or um, that that they would be able to be characterized as, as a company that uh, discriminates based on race. Yeah, and then and then trying to jumping into like the lit the litigation part of it, if the employer doesn't have a good file on the employee uh, and and whether or not there's a termination, maybe there's an adverse employment action where they they avoid a promotion because of this lack of performance that they're not being given. Which you know, under California law, we you know we have our adverse employment action as a, a condition precedent to a lot of our claims here, employment-based claims here. And if you don't have a file, we we hit on this earlier. If you don't have a file on this employee, note to file. You don't have PIP. You don't have you know signed handbooks. You don't have whatever. You're gonna have a really really bad time defending that in the litigation. Even if the actions on the employer side weren't necessarily unlawful. Now again, you're in front of a jury. In, in a lot of counties we practice in, they're very diverse, which is amazing. But for this claim for the employer, it's not. So this is a, a good reminder to the employers out there and HR professionals out there to always maintain files, always make notes. If you're having a problem with an employee, document it, whether it's in, from a note to file, you know, the smallest possible note where nobody really knows about it as long as it's in there all the way up to through discipline and, P and performance improvement plans. You want to make sure you have those documents because again, if you're sued, that's the first thing they're going to request. If not before, because in California, there's a way to request the files before pursuant to the code. You, again, you're going to have a very bad time. I don't know what that's from, but I like the quote. You're going to have a bad time. Uh, that is from South Park. That's the pizza French fries where they're learning how to ski. And if you French fry when you're supposed to pizza, you're going to have a bad time. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, Shout out to South Park, to Matt and Trey. Exactly, oh, man. Um, and all the money that they've made from their media, which is the plan here. We're, we're probably going to be on Comedy Central within the next few months based on the, the performance of our first uh, four podcasts that have been uploaded. We are up to 96 downloads, people. We are four downloads away from being 100 downloads certified. And um, we know some of you people have just been listening to like the first four seconds and turning it off. Honestly, I don't have a problem with it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's the best part here in the intro. That guy, we're out. Yeah, as long as we get our stats up, then, then I'm happy. You know, I, I don't really care about anything else rather than numbers. Um, so I don't again, know about you, but I got my contract from Comedy Central already. And it says, if you sign this, just don't come near us, please. Just don't come near us. <laughs> yeah, I can't. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, mine probably got lost in the mail or something like that. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for listening. We just want to give a shout out. Uh, so everybody, uh, thank you so much. Uh, I, I, I make light, but we, we do appreciate it because, uh, we, we hope we can make some sort of, um, positive, uh, um, impact on your relations with your employees and, and give you a little bit of, uh, guidance. And, um, to that end, I, I think, um, we should talk about, uh, 
a little about what it looks like to get sued. And, and you mentioned um, that there are some ways in the code in California uh, to get employee records before suing. And um, I, I think uh, it, it would be a good time maybe to transition to talk about the demand letter um, versus the, the summons and complaint, uh, because they're two very different things um, that could potentially lead to the same place, which is settlement or the case going away or going to trial, um, but uh, starting out in very different ways. Um, so, um, Ryan, do you want to quickly talk about the difference between um, getting served with a demand letter and, and getting served with the summons and complaint? Yeah. Um, the first, I guess, natural progression and, and what we're seeing a lot of times, COVID changed a little bit because things went from straight demand letter to lawsuit, but the natural course or natural natural progression of how an employment lawsuit is received by an employer or or its counsel is you receive a demand letter. And usually that first, there's either one or two. The first demand, in the one situation, there's a, a very detailed, again, the more detailed from a plaintiff's attorney, the better, because the employer is more apt to, to look into it, respond and possibly settle early. But you receive a, a demand letter saying, look, this is all the things that happened. These are all the things that happened. We we know they happened, we have proof, whatever. They, a lot of BS in those letters are very, very long-winded, like artist vocabulary. And they ask for a, a crap ton of money, uh, and then they say, well, we're we're entitled to do this crap ton of money, but we'll settle for some lower amount of money, which is still absurd. Or that's, we'll go to mediation. Right. Or go to mediation. That's the the screw you, pay us or we're going to sue you letter, which happens all, all across the spectrum of, of big firms, little firms and, and good claims to bad claims. Then you have the second way of doing it, which is the first letter you receive from a plaintiff's attorney or sometimes from the employee, him or herself, is, hey, I want my file. And the file portion of it, in California specifically, you require an employer when received, they receive a demand for the file, they have to produce it within 30 days under labor code section 1198.5. If they don't, there's a 750 fine or penalty that you, that, that employee can receive through litigation plus attorney's fees and costs to get to that point. Um, I, I, <laughs> I pause and hesitate because the $750 fee is a little ridiculous. For se to get that $750 fee, the employee has to sue the employer, prevail at trial, and then file a later motion for fees and costs on that one issue. Now, $750 is not a lot of money to an employer when you're talking about spending, you know, fifty dollars to $100,000 in defense costs for a very basic case. So a lot of times, employers just don't respond um, because by not responding, sorry, going, I'm going behind the curtain on, on the defense litigation here. This is actually huge. This is something a lot of people don't know. It's something that's developed since COVID and, and is a corollary of the fact that cases that used to take maybe a year to get to trial, which put a lot of pressure on the defense counsel um, when they were dealing with a very, um, very responsible and proactive plaintiff's counsel, was that you, you don't have a lot of time. And with COVID, all these cases got pushed back. Uh, courts went from having an average of, say, 500 cases per judge per courtroom to about 900. And, and this has really um, made it difficult for people to get a trial within even two years. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. Um, and to add kind of to that is if the employer doesn't provide the records to the to the employee's attorney like you, if I don't send you out of the employer's records, the employee's records, you're not going to have any confirmation or any documents to support, no, or not to support the claim or, or to discredit the claim from the employer. So you're stuck, literally stuck with what your client provided you and is or her or otherwise testimony. And that's it. But if the employer provides a file, then obviously there's they're reducing a cause of action under 1198.5, but they're giving all of the, they're supposed to be giving all of the employee file, which in California is very vague, but at a minimum, everything that the employee signed to the employee's attorney. And what is that employee's attorney going to do? They're incentivized to find something in there to sue you for, right? So that's the first step. That's the first step of demand in this two-phase process. Um, the second step being a follow-up letter from the attorney, essentially saying, thank you, we received the file or not. Here's our demand letter, which is very long-winded and they want you know some crazy amount of money, but and we'll go to mediation or we'll sell it with you for some smaller amount of money. Um, so really the, the difference is the first demand for the employee records under 1198.5, pursuant to the labor code, various labor code sections, including section 432, 
and possibly for wage records, depending on what that employee may believe is wrong. And uh, just to be clear, even though you've gotten a demand letter um, and, and not a complaint, you still need to talk to your attorney about this. It's still something that you need to bring to your attorney. Uh, usually in uh, situations outside of uh, employment, if somebody gets a demand letter, uh, I'll, I'll usually tell the, the client, just ignore it. It doesn't have any legal effect. Don't, don't worry about it until you actually get sued. Uh, because talking to the other side, it, it, you might give up stuff that you don't want to give up, information, or um, just start a dialogue that you can't get out of. And uh, honestly, it's it's a good strategy uh, in non-employment cases, I would say, to ignore demand letters until you get something serious going. Um, well, because that forces them to, what is this, what's the this, this saying? Crap or get off the pot? Like, it yeah. forces the employer to do something. And it forces their, um, the employee, excuse me, forces the employee to do something. Forces the employee's attorney to really make us take a stand on, do I trust my client? Is my client going to testify well in front of a jury? Do I believe the client's facts? I mean, all of those things. And am I going to put two years of my work out for this person based on their, you know, what they're saying and their lack of documents? That, that's a great point because that was the, the next thing that I was going to talk about is some people might be wondering further a little bit, why, why would you send a demand letter versus just going ahead and suing? Uh, th there's a few reasons. Uh, number one, uh, it costs 500 bucks to, to file the lawsuit. And if you're a, a plaintiff's attorney, you're usually doing this on contingency, which means that you're going to be paying the costs uh, a lot of times. I mean, depending on the client, but uh, a lot of times you're paying the costs um, for the lawsuit, and that's going to cost you $500. And not only that, uh, a lot of times the things that the employer is, is talking about uh, needs to be proven. You need to see what kind of company you're dealing with to see if they're going to be a big problem to sue or if they're very disorganized and it's going to be a company that uh, is basically shooting themselves in the foot with the way that they run their HR department. And right. so um, you, you um, as a plaintiff's attorney, want to investigate things a little bit further and uh, talk to opposing counsel or the HR department for the company to, to see if you can... Um, uh, see if what what your client has been or potential client has been saying is true about what happened at that company. So it gives you a, a little bit more leeway than if you're filing a lawsuit, which is a lot more serious. If you file a lawsuit, then it's one of those things that you really have to go through with. Uh, I get a lot of clients that also say, oh, let's just file the lawsuit and we'll see how it goes. And if you know they don't want to settle, we'll just draw it. Well, it's not that easy but just to do that. That's kind of very uninformed way of, of going about it. So um, the the demand letter just gives you an opportunity to um, investigate a little bit further without being tied down by the lawsuit and, and all the um, uh, formal constraints that are now set on you because you're in a lawsuit versus uh, sending a demand letter and, and going to mediation without having a lawsuit filed. Well, and then and just kind of to illustrate this, this point, that was very well said. To illustrate this point, though, let's apply what you just said to the this last segment's example. This person comes in and tells you, that there is favoritism, that there's this, that there's that. And then they also kind of pepper in there the color, national origin, race, potential issues. I mean, that that to me is a wobbler is that, well, they spent a lot of time in their example talking about how they just weren't happy with the favoritism with no concrete examples. But then again, they said a lot of buzzwords at the end, you know, discrimination, race, not from here, you know, possibly color, because you said they're not, or they're, they said they're color, uh, of color. So, I mean, there's a lot there. I mean, I mean, I would think from a from a plaintiff's attorney perspective, if if you weren't sure you're taking the case, didn't have concrete examples, didn't have like, oh yeah, we got this employer, your employer, they're screwed, they screwed something up. You, you're going to need that demand. You're going to need to try to verify some of these claims because, again, two years of of a plaintiff's attorney's life on some past on the if come, I think they call it, and and the cool kids call it, is is a lot of work and a lot of risk, which I think you'd want to avoid. Which again, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, we, we talked a little bit earlier about um, how difficult it is for the representatives of the company to be caught in a deposition, but just as much uh, for for the plaintiff as well, because I've had situations where the plaintiff is sitting uh, in a, a deposition where uh, they've claimed discrimination, they've claimed harassment, and, and then, you know, when they're asked straight up, what is this lawsuit about? I think we might have mentioned this before, but, you know, they'll say something like, oh, I just want to get paid for my back injury. And, you know, that's one of those things that will just sink a case immediately. And so if you don't have a lot of uh, confidence in your client, you're, you're not going to want to go ahead and, and move forward with uh, with the lawsuit. Yep. Agreed. And, and that, again, not to keep saying highlighted this, these examples, but that 
highlights <laughs> the reason why an employer would not want to respond to the demand letter. Yes, there's a penalty. Yes, there's a potential you're going to get sued for not providing. And on that basis only and going to trial and losing and spending all this money. But there's also a better chance that an attorney is not going to take that case and that they can't take the case or they won't take the case because they don't have any confirmation from their client that anything actually happened. They're just sitting there with some amount of facts that they cannot verify or discredit, and they're just not comfortable taking it forward. And that's a big, I'm not saying that any employer should not uh, comply with the law. They absolutely should. Uh, and it's always our advice from at least my office to comply with every single law they're required to, every demand letter, everything. I can't force them to do that. I'm an attorney. I'm not an enforcer, not in the mafia uh, that I can talk about. So it's one of those things where, you know, all you can do is sit there, but strategically litigation strategy is, you know, you're taking a lot of balls out of this, uh, this pitching machine to give to the attorney on the other side to sue the employer if you don't provide that file. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it becomes very difficult as a plaintiff's attorney to want to commit to something like that um, when, when you don't have a lot of information. Because one of the things that's very helpful, especially if you don't have a smoking gun email uh, that says something racist or, or a recording or something of that nature, kind of hard evidence, which a, a lot of times these cases lack, um, is witnesses and a, a company that has good culture uh, that does investigations that takes things seriously is going to have um, uh, employees that respect the culture and not lining up to be a uh, a witness in a case against the company. Um, so th that's why it's kind of very important to have this good culture in place because if you do get sued, you want to make sure that um, it, it's by a rogue actor and it's not just a representative of a class of employees who have been feeling this way because if it is that um, one lawsuit can really uh, trigger a whole bunch of other lawsuits or a whole bunch of people coming out of the woodwork with similar claims and, and that could really be damaging to a company. Yeah, agreed. And that's another reason to keep things in arbitration, which is a subject of another conversation uh, for a future podcast. Um, Did you? So I, I, I don't want to like step on where you're at here on this stuff, but this might be a good time to talk about uh, instead of like, you know, the lawsuit route, we've kind of addressed how that would start from this employee from our example earlier, but maybe to talk a little bit about making sure your HR department and your company is complying do first doing their job, but then complying with internal policy. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, we, we can break here. We're going to, uh, end segment two, give our sponsors, uh, another chance to get in your ear and, and tell you about their great products and great services that they have. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll be right back. And we're back with segment three. Um, segment three is called, We Scare the Shit Out of You also known as this is why you need an arbitration clause. Um, we're still working on the name thing. Uh, this is brought to you by our sponsors. Of course, we'd like to give a big shout out to our sponsors who uh, make this podcast possible. Uh, our first sponsor is uh, Ryan Ellis Law Corporation. Very generous sponsor who has, uh, I don't know, what did you, what, no, what did they? I don't know these people. I just heard they're great. I, I don't know what they, I, you take all the money. I just talk. I, uh, I don't, I don't know what they paid. I just know they're good people. And uh, you should patronize their business and or services. Yeah, thanks to uh, Ryan Ellis uh, Law Corp. I'm off the wing stop after this. Um, and then also our other wonderful sponsor, Law Office of Arta Wildebor, um, who uh, has generated- Also great people. I, I've never met them, never heard of them, but a little bit less great than the Ryan Ellis people I've heard. Yeah, I just talked to them on the phone, you know, uh, <laughs> when they wanted to sponsor us. So that's the only reason I know. Um, okay, so in this uh, wonderful segment, um, we want to talk about huge jury verdicts that have happened here in California that should scare any employer. Um, and, and the first one that we want to talk about is a $464 million verdict um, that was uh, here in L.A. Superior Court, um, where a jury awarded two employees um, of, I think it was L.A. County, uh, for a case that dealt with sexual harassment, racial harassment in the workplace, and um, wrongful termination. Uh, I, I don't even know what to say to this. I mean, 464 million, I, full, full disclosure, I've not read 
the verdict. I have not checked the appeal process. I I would venture to bet. I would bet. I venture to bet. I would I would bet a venture lot of money. Yes. Venture to guess. I venture to guess that this has been appealed, probably in the annals of the appellate process. But oh my goodness, I could not imagine being a plaintiff or a plaintiff's attorney, and getting in Los Angeles County, so state court, a four hundred and sixty-four million dollar verdict. Four hundred forty of that being punitive. I mean, that is there have to be facts here that are just absurd. I mean, this is. I, I so I'm in shock. This is exactly what you have to have. Um, as a plaintiff's attorney to, to kind of advertise, hey, I'm so good. But on the employer side, like when I mean, you're firing your attorney, I would assume. But and again, I don't know who did it. I'm sure there is basis on all that stuff. But oh my goodness. And <laughs> from the defense side, like you said, Arda, to use my word, highlight arbitration clause. Valid, enforceable arbitration clause. Yeah, th this is uh, the only thing you can do really to combat getting to this point. Uh, I, I think arbitration clause, there's something that California has tried to target um, to take out of employee contracts. And I think there, there's even a little bit more um, momentum in, in the, on the federal side to get rid of these things because uh, they, they really put employees in a very tough position um, because arbitration uh, famously, I think, really awards maybe, I think, 17% uh, on average of what jury verdicts are. Um, so th that's a huge, huge, huge amount um, of, of difference between going to arbitration and going to a jury. Um, arbitrators uh, in employment cases are paid directly by the defendants, by the employers, because the law says that the employees don't have to pay anything over and above what they would have to pay to file a lawsuit, which is in California about 500 bucks. Uh, so um it, it's a good thing for the employees in the sense that they only have to pay 500 bucks but now they're in a forum which is less likely to reward them uh for damages in in the same way that a jury would or the threat of a jury would so you would probably get a higher settlement uh, if you're in court uh, and settle before trial whether um whereas you know if you're in arbitration and you want to settle during the mediation before the arbitration starts you're probably going to settle for a lot less because there's a lot less potential damages to be awarded in arbitration. Yeah, and so a little bit more about this case. It was in Los Angeles. It was jury verdict, yes. It was brought by two men who alleged they were forced, who alleged, oh my goodness, who alleged they were forced out of their jobs at Southern California Edison. And this is after they complained about repeated sexual and racial harassment in one of the offices. Um, I, I think it's interesting because this is a sexual harassment case brought by a male, which is, I'm not going to say atypical, but for a verdict of size, I, I would not have guessed it was a, a male or two males in this situation. There's two plaintiffs. And one of the plaintiffs alleged that after being at Edison for 16 years, he was pushed out of a supervisor job constructively, saying that Southern California Edison created and permitted an intolerable working condition to force him out after he reported widespread harassment and racist language. I mean, it, this, to me, screams of large verdict, but this also screams to me, prove it. Right. I mean, there, there's no way that you can get this kind of money without showing some some blatant and patently bad harassment, discrimination, excuse me, harassment and, and racist things going on inside the company. Listen, you're not even going to get 100 grand as a plaintiff if you can't prove that, let alone 464 million. Uh, there's 22 and change in compensatory damages and then the rest being punitive damages. I mean, that that is just uh, a punishment for behavior that has to be absolutely insanely egregious. And uh, usually that deals with retaliation, um, that, that deals with the company covering up things, uh, botched investigations, um, wrongfully terminating the employees that complain. These are the types of things that companies do that, that really will expose them to lawsuits after hearing complaints from employees. But I, I, I can't even really wrap my head around, uh, you know, $400,000 or $400 million um, in a situation like this. But um, again, the lesson here is have an arbitration clause and, and do things the right way. Um, and, and Ryan, what are, what are some of the things that you can do uh, if you're dealing with this to, to mitigate uh, the ability for um, plaintiff's attorneys to get damages against you? No, great, great question. And in one of the attorney's comments, uh, one of the plaintiff's attorney's comments said that these two men had the courage to stand up to the harassment and discrimination or, or racist comments and that the company's response was to pretend the problem was limited to a handful of bad actors ignoring the culture of the company. 
this goes directly to what we were talking about earlier about having an employee handbook, asterisk, asterisk, name of the podcast, asterisk, asterisk. But at the same time, having enforcement of your policies, making sure that you address complaints properly, making sure that you don't short shrift anything. I use that phrase a few times in this pod, in this episode and, and giving really everybody the response of, hey, we're taking this under consideration. We're going to conduct a fair and thorough investigation and provide a response, discipline or other action based on hopefully objectively based on the facts that we that we have and what we find in our investigation. Clearly, uh, Southern California Edison didn't do that. Uh, otherwise, the jury would have awarded such ridiculous numbers. And again, I say ridiculous, jealous that it's not going to my bank account, but it, it's just Absolutely. ridiculous. I, um, so at the same time, we really, this, this, this is like the one of the 440 million prime examples of why the comp it's very important for company, like, I guess, HR department, company employees, C-suite, not only to have a handbook, but to comply with the policies and procedures. And especially in California, comply with law, which is do not discriminate, do not retaliate, do not uh, discriminate, retaliate, do not harass, take this stuff seriously, perform an investigation. If you had something of this, this magnitude, I would think that SEE would have hired an outside investigator or outside HR company to conduct an objective investigation. And again, I don't know the facts. I don't know all the facts. Just making kind of comments based on the articles we've read here. But this to me is something that just hits to the, the real foundation of what we talk about in this podcast, which is have an employee handbook, have your employees do their job, hold them accountable, make sure you have your files set and don't, you know, essentially don't allow for that to happen beyond the point of um, like an HR department running, running all these investigations when there could be bigger implications at issue, definitely get counsel involved. And, and I think there, there's a fear from a lot of companies that if they conduct an investigation, they are paying credence to the complaints. And, and if they conduct an investigation, that somehow is going to be evidence that something has gone wrong and, and maybe um, make other employees aware of, of the situation and, and uh, create some exposure for the company, which, I mean, I, I guess it could be true uh, that conducting an investigation, it, it's kind of like, um, uh, well, I, I can't really think of the metaphor, but anyway, it's kind of just... You know, they don't want to whip people up into a frenzy. They don't want to get the idea of suing the company into people's heads at all. And, and so they won't do an investigation because they think if they ignore it or if they do like a botched investigation, these employees will go away and, and they won't reach a complaint, uh, reach the complaint stage. But one thing I have to say about that is we, we talk uh, about the emotional um, response driving people wanting to sue. And if you do these types of things, what you're doing is really guaranteeing that there's going to be an emotional response here to the people that are bringing up these complaints and then either being ignored or feeling that like the company is kind of circling the wagons and, and creating um, a, a story or a narrative um, that, that really dismisses their complaints and, um, and, you know, puts them in a worse position than they were before they complained. Yeah. And that's, that's the rough dichotomy between what HR people think and, and want to do and what they think is going to happen versus what the law says. California, and, and again, I'm not, I don't have the federal law in front of me, so I'm not going to quote it. I deal mostly in California uh, employment cases as defense counsel. In California, you have a duty, a duty, an affirmative duty to prevent and correct unlawful behavior pursuant to the law. So if you do not investigate, you are not meeting your duty, period. Uh, I'm not saying that's the law because a jury could find otherwise. But somebody like Arda, competent counsel, will hammer you, which I'm sure counsel that we're in the case we're talking about did. That's hence the verdict. But if you don't investigate, you don't do it properly, you don't you, you don't you know do a full and complete investigation. You're gonna be you're gonna have a bad time. You're gonna have a bad time. You're gonna have a 460 million dollar bad time. But just essentially do the job, do the work. You're there to do a job. Don't have favoritism. Get through the investigation. Comply with the law. No investigation equals no compliance. With your policies or the law, if you have policies, which you should, again, employee handbook, um, and make sure you comply with those. If you don't, you have a really bad time. Well, here's the thing. Even, even if you do all those things right, and, and we talked about, there's no way to stop getting sued. There's, there's yep. nothing to do from completely stopping getting sued. Um, 
But if if they would have done all those things correctly, this is something that they might have settled for $75,000 in mediation and never would have gotten out. Instead, they're now dealing with the, the specter of a $464 million um, uh, verdict hanging over their head, even though it's, it's likely to get uh, reduced on appeal. It doesn't matter. The, the impact on a company of having a verdict like that brought against them, even an institutional sized company like uh, Southern California Ed Edison, that's just a huge, uh, dramatic impact that you know, will take years uh, to, to recover from. But, you know, one thing about these investigations uh, is that it's not necessarily the HR department who's responsible for not wanting to do these investigations. Uh, and a lot of times you have uh, HR departments that really know what their responsibility is to their employees and, and want to do it, but then they have an issue with the C-suite people who don't necessarily want to act on uh, the information given to them or the advice given to them by the HR department. And Ryan, I, I, this is probably something that you deal with a lot um, in your position consulting is companies that don't want to listen to your advice. They pay for it and they know you're the expert, but then they don't want to uh, act on it. So uh, HR departments deal with that a lot too. What would you say to an HR person um, that uh, is getting a lot of either pushback from the the uh, C-suite or um, the C-suite just won't won't listen to that. Yeah, and, and that's it's you phrased the question very well because from an HR department, your job is to direct and advise. You can't tell the C-suite what to do if you're simply in a in an HR managerial role without decision making authority. You're you're a you're a hey, this is I did the research. Here's what we have. Here's what council says. Here's your list of options, like pick one. And if C-suite doesn't do it, they don't do it. Um, there's an example of a client of mine uh, who, or not a client of mine, ex-client of mine, previous client of mine, whatever, who received a result from a third-party company discussing internal issues in, in the company. Uh, those policies and suggestions from the third party that conducted the audit or conducted the research were not followed. And that led to a significant litigation after the fact which could have completely been prevented if the company made the right decision. And again, I, I'm not saying the company made the wrong decision. I'm not saying that they weren't completely followed. I'm not throwing a company under the bus here at all. But this is 464 million reasons as to why the C-suite needs to really give suggestions from the HR department full consideration given potential issues in litigation. Um, and again, to, just to kind of circle back to the, your question, HR department, anybody minus a decision-making C-suite HR person, you just got to direct and you got to provide advice and provide options. In situations like this, speak up, make sure your voice is heard. Because again, you you won't be held liable because you're not making the decision, but at the same time, you want to make sure you show you're doing your job. I think it's just, it's a very difficult position to be in as an HR person because it's not like you can go to the employees and announce like, hey, listen, I tried, but these jerks up there at the CEO's office don't want to do what I'm telling them to do. You, you can't do that. Uh, and and you're in the unenviable position at this point of, of having to carry out policies um, that have been decided upon uh, by your superiors that you don't agree with. And that's a very difficult position to be in. Um, and, and I think, again, that that's why the um, relationship between managers and employees uh, is so important um, for managers to be able to explain these decisions and not just leave it on HR. Um, because again, you know, so many of these things are dumped on the HR department that they're not supposed to be dealing with. Um, and, this, and this is all, sorry, I'm sorry. Bad again there. So this is another reason to have general counsel or, or even have a law firm on retainer to provide these questions to, Hey, we have this, you know, insert issue here. Can you provide your comments or, Hey, we have this issue here. I have prepared a memorandum for you about what I believe our choices are. Can you vet it for me? Because you know, an HR professional can have their signature on a memo with options to the C-suite or to management, but that's probably not going to be given as much credibility, which despite the fact that it should be, uh, not given as much credibility as the same memorandum that's been blessed by counsel. So again, it's just trying to, the bigger the decision, the bigger the issue, obviously, use more, uh, try to get more research and, and consent to that to not persuade C-suite, because again, you're just preventing options, presenting options, but direct in the right way to make help help them make the right decision. And again, in this set of facts, obviously this decision or whatever the investigation was, was an issue from the start. That goes to a whole company culture issue, that goes to holding people accountable issue, that goes to you know strength of management issue. There's so many things to talk about as to what went wrong in the beginning 
which maybe is a good subject for like to going back and fixing and reverse engineering cases to see how it could have been prevented, kind of like the butterfly effect. Yeah. But you know, one of those things where you can't do that. I mean, you can't look back or look forward and see what's going to happen, but you can definitely look back. And if you don't, what, another again, the phrase, if you don't acknowledge history or understand history, it's doomed to repeat itself. Something like that, where if you don't do that, you're screwed. And this is a prime example. I yeah. don't know if I answered the question. I kind of went off there. My bad. No, no, it's, it's, it's a good point you make because this is, of course, this is the answer to what's the worst that could happen. If oh, you yeah. wanted to know what's the worst that could happen from running your company in a shitty way, here you go. Yeah. Uh, that's it. I mean, it doesn't even have to be 464 or $424 million Whatever, for yeah. company. It could be a lot less. But again, this is this is the answer to what's the worst that could happen. So we want people to be very cognizant of the fact that uh, a lot of these things um, seem like they'll go away or they're not a big deal, but uh, they, they could be, you know, it's like the reverse lottery. You're, you're, you're in it to lose it. Uh, and, and you never know when your number is going to be called. Mm -hmm. So, well, um, let me see, what do we got here? I think if you were around an hour here, I think, uh, maybe we could wrap things up. We want to thank our sponsors again, Ryan Ellis Law Corporation, uh, for their generous sponsorship, Arta Wildeboer, his office, law office of Arta Wildeboer, um, you know, generously sponsoring the show as well and and paying for uh, ads on LinkedIn um, to to draw all you wonderful people here. Well, so, I'm going I'm to take the half glass half full approach and say we thank you for being here this long on this podcast and staying, staying tuned in. Uh, if you have any thoughts or comments, questions, concerns, podcast ideas, let us know. Uh, we're, we're always open. We, although we have our kind of topics we want to talk about, you know, we want to hear from you. Heard from a couple of you already, mostly my my family members, but it's okay. They're, they're subscribers. We, we know there's around 98 people or some or 96 people who are listening to this thing. So, uh, you know, somebody, if you have love any you. type of suggestion, we love you. We'd love to hear your suggestions. Hi, mom. How are you? Uh, hopefully, mom, you've listened this far. Yeah. And on that, on that note, thank you all very much. We look forward to seeing you in our next episode where we talk about something that you're going to want to hear. Yeah, absolutely. That, uh, you know, is, is very uh, um, important. Yeah, that thing, that one or two things. Yeah, yeah we'll talk about it. It's three minutes before we start the show next time. <laughs> <laughs> That's the end of the show. Thanks, everybody.